Hello everybody and welcome to the latest episode of Spill Your Beans. Today is a very special episode because we're going to be starting the MCU with the first three films, Iron Man, Hulk and Iron Man 2. I'm joined today by Philip Hawkins. Hello. Hello. You are How uh, are you doing? I'm good. You're a YouTube content creator and you've got a podcast of your own. Yeah, so. uh, the podcast is Everybody is Dead Dave, which is a Red Dwarf review podcast, which myself and another uh, YouTuber, Adam Martin, co-host together. Uh, we're we're sort of steaming ahead through all of the episodes of Red Dwarf there, um, with the occasional guest on. And you might—I'm not sure when these are going to come out in relation to each other, but uh, but you yourself will be appearing on a future episode. Yes, and I and I look forward to it. I'm a big fan of Red Dwarf, um, and it's not a podcast that I expected to see. It's like a red, like a Red Dwarf one, um, but I'm like. I'm so behind it. I love that, I know. It, I mean, it just came randomly out of the fact that I was watching one of Adam's videos and he just mentioned that he'd never watched Red Dwarf. And I was so shocked by this fact <laughs> that I was like, well, I've, I've got to start a podcast with him and make him watch it now. <laughs> it's the, the most elaborate but best way of getting someone to watch a TV show I think I've ever seen. So I have to respect <laughs> that. Um, but yeah, today we're going to be talking about marvel films specifically iron man one two and the incredible hulk um you mentioned the mcu in the little form you filled out um, um before coming on spill your beans what does sort of the mcu mean to you and what do these films sort of um mean to you specifically well i've always been a comic book fan uh, anyway so although i was actually with comics i was much more i read a lot more dc comics than i did marvel i had gotten into marvel with the with their ultimate universe line of books but i, I hadn't sort of followed the classic as as it's referred to the 616 universe <laughs> stuff um uh, so I, i'd kind of dabbled with marvel but i've mostly read dc but also i just really love the idea of this sprawling connected universe it was the you know it's the first really successful attempt at doing something like that you'd had it you know slightly in other things like star trek had several tv shows and movies which were all part of the same continuity mm. but nobody has ever done anything on the scale that marvel has done with all the connected tv shows and although i know some people now argue that some of those tv shows don't count as the continuity but I still mm. count agents of Sierra shield as part of the continuity <laughs> but so it had all of this you know connective stuff uh, and it's gone for what 2008 to now what's that uh 14 years Bloody hell, yeah it must be like Almost. yeah yeah 13 14 years so ish. so it's That's just it's, i love the the interconnectedness of it all yeah same here i think when did you get introduced to the mcu what was the first film that you watched out of that was it iron man I think it probably was, but I don't think I saw it at the cinema. It's re it's really tough to think back. Um, I I'm trying to think which the first one I actually saw at the cinema. I might have seen Iron Man two at the cinema. That mm. might have been the first one because I don't think I saw The Incredible Hulk at the cinema, and I don't think I saw Iron Man at the cinema because I didn't like I I vaguely knew who Iron Man was. But because I was, mo I don't only mostly read the Ultimate Marvel stuff. He'd been in them. He was in the Ultimates, um, but he wasn't like forefront of my knowledge of characters. So, mm. so I was kind of like when it. Ca I can't remember if I saw it on TV or if I just got the DVD. I, I generally can't remember how I first saw it. Um, but by the time, certainly by the time we got to the Captain America film, I was in and going to see him at the cinema every time. But before. 
Brilliant. I, but, uh, these three films, I just can't remember where I saw them. <laughs> well, for me, I, I, I sort of, I jumped on uh, Avengers and I sort of watched that on home release. I think either a DVD or it was on TV, something like that. So I think the first one I saw in cinema must have been like Avengers Age of Ultron, which is so like, so much later in the game, really. Like it took me a while to really go back and watch some of these, like for the first time even. Yeah, I do remember when the first Avengers movie came out, me and a, a group of friends decided we were going to marathon the whole of the MCU up <laughs> to that point, which at that point was the, mo you know, a handful of movies and also the little Marvel one-shot shorts, which had come out on the Blu-rays, little mm. additional little mini films, 10-minute, 15-minute films that mm. had come out on the Blu-rays. So, and we did those all in chronological order before going to the cinema to see Avengers on that one day. Like the idea of doing that now, it would take you several days just to do the films, let alone all the TV stuff to in yeah. intersect in between it. I tried to. In fact, I once did a video on my channel uh, a few. I think it was about three years ago, which was mm. how long it would take to marathon the MCU. And at that time, I worked out that if you included all of the TV shows, all of the books, all of the shorts, all of the books, and I think I factored out. in some time of the tie-in comics to the movies as well. There was a load of prequel that it would take about twenty-two days of watching for about twelve hours a day. <laughs> so taking almost That's a month, and that mad. was three years ago. <laughs> That's mad. I, I re-watched them all recently because I, I realised there's about three or four that I'd never seen. And I wanted to, I thought, well, I may as well go and just watch them all. I've got the time. I'll do it. I didn't do it in a marathon, thank God, because it feels like I probably wouldn't have made it all the way through. But I did it over the span of about a couple of months and I've only just come to the end of that recently. So it it is great. I mean, you have to appreciate it, especially like when you when you come to the end of that, especially now as well. Um, it's exciting to see where it's going to go. As in this next step, because it feels like, it, it, almost in a way, it feels like a breeze. All these sort of stories meld into one big story, and it's sort of like, ah, oh, it's a cool thing of its own. But then you remember there's like 23 feature-length films in there, and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> um, yeah, and nobody's ever been able to really recapture that since. Loads of people have tried. Mm. DC have tried, obviously. Yeah, DC definitely um, tried. And then there was the whole dark universe thing which was meant to be the horror movie monster things which kind of flopped after its first movie yeah and yeah nobody's ever been able to really recapture that sort of cinematic universe magic it is it is impressive um which again is why i was so like ready to talk about the mc on this podcast and i'm glad we're starting today it's, it's great to finally talk about it and going right back to the original as well um we'll talk about iron man first the very first the very original um 2008 film uh, I'm just, yeah. I think that's right. Um, what do you think about this film? Because I like you hear lots of things from different people. Lots of people think this is either like one of the better ones, or one of the worst ones, or one in between. In the sort of sense of that, you know, it's maybe the most original. Whether that's a good thing or not, how do you feel about this film? It kind of well, it sets the mold for a lot of the MCU going forward from that point because the kind of tone of this one. I mean, you can really notice it if you compare it to, as I'm sure we will, The the Incredible Hulk, which was filmed at the same, roughly the same time because they came out the same year. Mm. But because they hadn't, that Iron Man was so much more successful, they then took the template of Iron Man and the kind of tone of it and then brought that forward into, especially Avengers and post-Avengers. Mm. It's, it's all kind of the tone of Iron Man. Whereas... Incredible Hulk definitely isn't. And even yeah. like Thor has its own tone to a degree. It has some of the humor, but not quite the same as Iron Man. Mm. And yeah, that whole, the, the, the sort of slightly witty 
bantery type tone that we think of when we think of the MCU all comes from this film, which I, I think if I'm right in thinking it, it, it came about because the method they had when they were filming it was that they didn't have a, when they started with all the actors, they didn't have a solid script. They had an outline of where, what would, should happen in the scene and mm. then they workshopped it with the actors. So a lot of the, huh. the interactions between the actors come out of improvised moments during those workshops, which they just sort of off the cuff improvised. I think they're one of the moments in one of the back behind the scenes features where they talk about that is the, that like Obadiah Stane offering Tony a pizza and, and just their little bit of banter and back and forth there mm. was all improvised. Really? And, and it's things like that, that uh, which I think they then codified for the future. So it ended up being that sort of stuff being scripted into future movies. But mm. in this movie, it's all it's all the actors bringing it. And you can kind of tell in a way as well, in, in a good way, that doesn't come as any sort of surprise. Because um, you can sort of feel the chemistry when you're watching the film between the different actors. You can feel that they kind of... In, almost enjoy being around each other anyway um this is again yeah it's, it's interesting talking about it because it is probably one of the more unique films of the mcu this and the incredible hulk have the same sort of thing but came out very very differently um but i think there's a reason this one did so well and the reason they used this as a template is because it is just a pretty good film i mean it's you know if you compare it to some of the later mcu films you know it's quite difficult because it doesn't have the same sort of grandiose sort of scale but what it does have is like a, it feels like a, a solid mix between the MCU we have now, but also those sort of like you know the the early two thousands um, Sam Raimi Spider Man films. That's sort of like standalone superhero kind of vibe to it, which yeah, and they yeah. they do have that. I think that's what made the MCU work is that they didn't rush into the big grand spectacle and they didn't rush into the mm. leaning really heavily on the making it feel very comic booky. Because this came out around the same time as The Dark Knight. Um, so the the sort of trend, I suppose, with superhero movies was very grounded at the time. You know, mm. very set in the real, you know, what would superheroes be like in the real world type thing. And this does follow that. And mm. I think they needed to start with that. And and if you watch the movies as you, as they go through them, they gradually introduce these sort of more comic booky elements to the point where only now like 14 years later are we are we really getting things like magic introduced to the MCU yeah cuz if they'd gone straight in with like thing with a whole world of magic existing and everything mm. i think that might have put people off at the time oh definitely but they've through their movies and sort of gradually introducing these things like you know it was say it was a I, I can't remember when Guardians of the Galaxy came out, but it was that amount of years before they really started doing the space adventure stuff. And, you know, they gradually introduced more and more of the comic book elements. It's it sort of trained us, or, I mean, not me, because, and, and mm. those of us that were used to it in the comics, but trained the more general audience that weren't used to that mm. stuff to expect it and and get used to it. I think, yeah, it's an interesting one. It almost feels like it's a test as well. Every time they try something new, it feels like a... Uh, a, a real test to see what works, what doesn't. Especially like when you mentioned like Guardians there. When they did Guardians of the Galaxy, it almost feels like, okay, we're trying this, and if it doesn't work, we'll just forget this ever happened and we'll, just, we'll do something less with them. But it was a huge success. And the same thing with stuff like Doctor Strange 
Um, and it is, I think it really is impressive looking at Iron Man 1. Because um, I started watching, re-watching the MCU films um, around the time that the uh, Marvel TV shows started coming out. WandaVision, uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier and Loki. Um, so it's been great to watch some of the older films. Meanwhile, every week watching these newer ones and seeing almost how far it's come as well. Again, you're saying stuff like magic and how like um, Scarlet Witch has been done in like One Division and the way they've gone there and stuff with Loki and like you know the, the time travel, the the weird wacky stuff that that's trying to do now. It's it is quite impressive. But I love the fact that it all starts very humbly with Iron Man One. I love how this still feels like a timeless um, superhero film. It's sort of self-contained, um, and you can just watch this by itself. It feels weird to watch it by itself, but I think this probably is one of the only standalone MCU films that you could just watch and enjoy without needing further context. And that is obviously the, the, the luxury you're always going to get with being the first in a um, well eventual franchise. But it really is charming even still. It has all the, the energy, and I actually love the fact that Tony Stark feels like exactly the same character that he does in Endgame. Like, he has development, he has his arcs, but this is the same character. This is the same guy, um, and it works so well. Yeah, I think they did... I mean, casting Robert Downey Jr. was just a stroke of genius. He's yeah. perfect for this role. I, I literally could not imagine it. It's like, at one point, I think they were... Before he got cast, there was talk of Tom Cruise, and I just... Like, yeah. I can't imagine that at all. I can't imagine it, but it's also one of those ones that, like, I feel like who else could have done it not just that well, but for that long as well? Yeah. Who, who else could have done that? Because Robert, Robert Downey Jr., I feel like, is the perfect guy for that. He's basically born to play this character and is sort of committed enough where he will stick with this franchise all the way through. And, you know, I, I, I love that. I really love that. And especially, again, looking back at this film in hindsight, it's a really interesting one because it's really difficult to review, especially the early MCU films, because you almost have to review it with looking of where it's gone from there. You can't almost it's, you find it difficult to sort of review it by itself as its own film. But as its own film, it is still a great superhero story. It's maybe not like perfect. I think, to be honest, there's a huge takeaway from the film that I have, and I don't really like um, staying as the villain. I don't really like like Ironmonger and all that sort of thing. I don't know what you think about that, um, but I'm I'm not a huge fan of that. I feel like the story's really strong. It's got a lot of great elements in it, and it's got a lot of heart. Um, <laughs> that wasn't intentional. What what do yeah. you like about um, Obadiah Stane then? Well, I think the the development of the character is interesting. I like the motivations, but from going from that to being just you know like big angry robot who wants to kill everyone it just it it kind of felt a little bit too i don't want to say too comic booky because obviously like again i'm praising the future films for doing that but i think marvel in its first sort of era um especially in phase one had a bit of an issue with villains in my opinion i feel like a lot of them were very similar in the sense of um sort of just big angry person who's just wants to kill everyone opposed to there being like, and you look at, like, future, again, like, Thanos, like, where they went with that. There's motivation there beyond just he wants to kill people. There's an actual motivation, yeah. there's a story, there's a character in the same level as the heroes. I know in these early, uh, certainly in the early films, that they, there's a, basically a trend to the bad guy being a sort of opposite of 
mm. the good guy. So Tony's a good guy in a robotic suit. Obadiah Stane ends yeah. up as a bad guy in a robotic suit. Thor, you've got, you know, good God versus bad God. They, they sort of similar yeah. people with, although, though Loki doesn't have similar powers, it's, you yeah, know, yeah. It's, it's sort of like the mean, same though. sort of type of character. And you've got like Hulk and uh, Abomination. The same, yeah, Like American exactly. hero yeah. and like a very over the top, like kind of Nazi character. Yeah, yeah, I get what you mean, yeah. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I get some of the criticism there and I, I get what you mean about the sort of ending of where he, he sort of just goes from being like his motivation for most of the film, I totally get as as a villain mm. you know he's he's a he wants to make as much money he wants control of the company he wants it to make weapons because that will make him more money that all makes sense yeah and then you do get to the point where he's and i get why he'd want to build the suit as well he wants the tech that tony has uh and he wants to take tony out but then he get he kind of goes a bit ott with it where the point to the point where like even if tony hadn't stepped in surely the u.s government would mm. It's like, yeah, exactly. But it's also even in terms of his own character, it doesn't feel natural. Like, secretly, like, killing Tony Stark by taking out his arc reactor and that, like, naturally killing him to just sort of get himself out of the way. I mean, it's it's still up in the air and questionable as to the logic behind that. But then going from that and want to be like, oh, I want to take over the company. I want to, you know, he wants to own all this, do all that. But then he goes to that, to being in a big sort of robot suit picking up like a family of four in like a car and like trying to kill Iron Man with that. It's like, this is never going to look good for you ever. Like, you know, it's it's not... At that point, you can't run the company. So your whole motivation of the, the entire film has just gone out the window when you just start to violently, you know, start killing people. I just feel like they could have done the Iron Monger suit without it being just... Uh, he's just, you know, big, angry man who wants to kill everyone. Yeah, I I know what you mean. He could have been. I mean, even if they, he'd just kept it away from civilians and stuff, so because like you say, he there's no way he could publicly still run the company after that. He's been out in public yeah. doing that. So. Yeah, it's it's a bit difficult if you've just been like a really traumatic car accident and the person who caused it is like just on a billboard that like advertising some tech. It's kind of weird. It would never have worked. So that that's the only sort of big criticism I have of this film. Uh, which is sort of a trend across early MCU films, but that gets ironed out later on. I think for this film, though, I think it's annoying only because the rest of the film is so good and holds up so well, even for something that should almost feel a little bit cheesy at this point, but it doesn't. Because, again, like you look back at what was before this, we had like um, the Raimi Spider-Man films and probably the early Fantastic Four films, and like even yeah, though the Raimi the films, films... Yeah, them as well. And even when you look back at... like that era they're good but like it's undeniable that there is a sort of level where it's like well this is a bit cheesy now this is this this now is a bit cheesy then it was great but now it's kind of like okay not too sure it's like iron man actually i still think holds the test of time i think you could watch that anytime even now you know um 13 14 years down the line and it's still as entertaining it's still as um, developed in terms of character, in terms of world building. I think, the, the, again, I love the fact they didn't get carried away with it. Coulson being in there, with S.H.I.E.L.D. being in there, and that being a running joke, but not doing anything more than that, obviously other than the post credit scene. Which, that was ambitious, but even still, like, I love how the rest of the film is, it's got a world to it. You feel like there's stuff going on. And even though 
it is standalone, even though they didn't know where this was going to go. They couldn't have guessed that. You can look at that film, and I, I could still look at that film and think, yeah, like, Captain Marvel, that's happened, you know? Like, I still think, like, oh, yeah, you can you can imagine, like, the Eternals knocking about or Sorcerer Supreme being somewhere. Like, I can still imagine that in this same world, and that is a huge praise for the world building because that's almost impossible to do in hindsight. Hmm, yeah. In advance, sorry, not in hindsight. <laughs> yeah, I, I think again, where it is at now, looking back, it's like, oh, yeah, I can believe that. But to create that effect years before that's even a thing is, is incredible. Yeah, I think yeah. I, I with 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 Iron Man one, I think there's a lot of there's a lot to say about it. But I think um, I think it is good though. It's a great film. Um, it is a great film. It's I'd say it's pro it's my favorite Iron Man film out of the three Iron Man films. Yeah, it's definitely my favorite. I, to be honest, I don't think that's difficult either. I it's a, it's a very easy win, <laughs> and we'll get on to Iron Man two in a bit. But like, I I I totally agree with that. I think um, this set a precedent and it had the it had the perfect sort of balance of things as well and i quite like as well that you know it was a bit different tony stark actually killing people in this in the sense of like when he goes um to well even at the beginning when he sort of when he breaks out and kills basically all the other people in the ten rings yeah and then he, he uh returns later on doesn't yeah. he to to destroy his weapons and mm. uh, and has another firefight with them yeah and i like what i like about tony's character is that he does develop i mean in that first sort of 10 15 minutes before you know when we get the flashback to before because it starts off with the him getting course, captured yeah. but then we see the sort of 36 hours leading up to that mm. and like it, the movie does its best to show you that he is a complete arrogant arsehole. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that is the like, point, though. That, and, I, and I actually love yeah. that. Because you kind of... You kind of hate him, but you also love him as well. In a weird sense. Yeah, because he's got that charisma yeah. that makes you like... You think, oh, God, this guy. But he is quite charming. And you're also so used to superhero films at this point as well, where the superheroes, they don't kill anyone, and they're quite morally sound. There's no, like, room to sort of wiggle around that. It's like they're either a hero or they're a villain. Whereas Tony Stark is like, he's a hero, but he's also a prick. <laughs> and I yeah, quite like and that's that. What, I mean, even by the end of the film, because he goes through this character development and, you know, he goes from being like quite selfish, quite self-centered mm. um, to to someone who has realized, like sort of has survivor's guilt to a degree. He says he shouldn't be alive mm. and that he has to, you know, now he has to dedicate his life to making the world a better place. Um, so he's got that character development. But he also still has a load of flaws. He's still arrogant at the end of the film. And he's still, you know, a show-off. And he's he's not perfect. And he will make bad choices, as we'll see in the second film as mm. well. Uh, so I like the fact that he does get that development, but it's not, like, stereo... It's not, it's not, like, black and white. Like, oh, he was... He was a bad, not a great guy, and now he's a great guy. Mm. It, like, there's shades of grey in there still. Yeah. I totally agree. I, I I quite like that element of it. And I, I love how this develops across the um, future films as well. But in this, it's... I think that's a huge plus of it. I think it's really, really well handled, to be honest, in terms of, like, the characterization of Tony, making him a bit of a dick, which is accurate to, you know, his character... But also making that work in a sense where you still feel like he's the hero. You're still rooting for him at the end of the day. 
it's it's i quite like that it was different and it's refreshing and even going back and watching it it's like this is this is really good um before we round off this film though i would like to ask if you have particularly uh, a favorite scene favorite moment from this film that you'd like to mention um i think if i was going to pick a favorite moment it's probably where he goes back in his mark ii suit to destroy the weapons you know, the first, the first time it's been painted red and gold, mm. he goes back to the Middle East to destroy the Stark weapons that he knows the terrorists have, the Ten Rings have. And just that whole scene, the, I mean, we haven't even talked about the soundtrack. The ACDC soundtrack oh, God, to this movie yeah. is immense. Yes. Uh, it's, like, I, it's so good. And it carries over into the next one. you got ACDC in the next one as well. And I just that was less, a perfect choice. Mm. And that, uh, I think it's... Is it Shoot to Thrill or something? Shoot to Kill, Shoot to Thrill, something like that song mm. that is, I think it's that one that's playing when he's something doing like that, yeah. that sort of scene and and owning all of the Ten Rings guys. That is immense. It's the first time you, we get to see him do a superhero landing mm. and uh, and all that sort of stuff. That is a great scene. That's a great choice. I love that. For me, I, I, I think slightly, I, I think I'd probably pick the scene um, where he's breaking out of the cave. I think I I, yep. don't know, I there's something about that which is so like um, I don't know how to put it. It's almost like he's it, you really feel that like he could still die here. Like he is really fighting for his life, um, and there's something about that that I love, and that sort of sense of relief when he actually does get out is so good. And you got the added. Uh, there's like there's emotional weight to that scene as well because of course you've got the guy that was helping him in course, the cave yeah. that that dies and he's you know there's that lovely moment where he's earlier on he's talked about getting back to his family and Tony's like so when he's lying there dying he's like no no we've got to get you back to your family and he reveals that his family are already dead and that so he is going back to his family mm. his family have been dead a while and that that's quite that was yeah a very it's it's sort of touching moment it's a very powerful um scenery I, I love how that is the crux of tony's story as well um of like making him a better person and again huge props to the structure of that for showing that first scene then showing him being a dick and then actually showing him coming to terms with that and changes the person was so well put together i could i just couldn't see it working any other way yeah because i think actually that the um the village that the guy says he's from the guy that was in the cave with mm. him and the other prisoner is then later he Stark finds out that it was his weapons that were used on that village. Mm. So he also finds out that his weapons killed that guy's family. Mm. So that sort of adds even more weight to it. It's it's a rough one, and I and I again all leads into the characterization and the world building. Again, just within the one film, is so bloody good. But uh, yeah, is there anything else you want to sort of mention in terms of Iron Man one? Because I think I mean for me, I, it. I could, there's only so much I can say it's a great standalone superhero film before I start repeating myself. The only the only thing I was going to mention it's a it's a silly nitpick because it doesn't matter because it's a superhero movie. But uh, the amount of times that Tony Stark should have died just because of how he like his suit malfunctions or something like when he crashes in that Mark One suit into the sand, how he didn't break his neck. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> And then when he's testing the thrusters, when he's building the Mark II, oh, yeah. and it literally flings him up into the ceiling, face first into the concrete. It's like, how is he not dead? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Um, but yeah, no, I think 
in terms of Iron Man 1, it's just a good film, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're going to go on a quick break now, and then when we come back, we're going to be talking about your choice for the record spinner, and then talking about the incredible, questionable Hulk. Um, see you all in a minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the second part of our MCU Part 1, I think, podcast. I'm not, really, I'm not really sure what I'm going to call this one yet, but it's the first three films of the MCU. Before we talk about The Incredible Hulk, though, I'm going to be asking Philip about his choice for The Record Spinner. For those who haven't listened to an episode before, uh, The Record Spinner is a little segment we do on here where we ask guests to pick out a particular film soundtrack or track from a film soundtrack that they hold close to themselves, hold dear for a particular reason or want, you know, Something like that. I'm, I'm waffling now. <laughs> Do you have a particular favourite choice for this uh, record spinner segment, Philip? I do, mm. and it's a it's a whole soundtrack. Okay. Um, it's from a musical, and it is the Greatest Showman soundtrack. Oh right. Okay. Interesting. I know. I'm a big musicals fan, anyway. Um, I'm, uh, so, but this one is like, I mean, it's just to, just to demonstrate how much I love this soundtrack, you know, how Spotify at the end of the year will do its Spotify wrapped thing to tell you what, what you've been listening to over the year, what you're thinking. Basically every single category was, uh, (laughs) Greatest Showman. It was like most listened to album, Greatest Showman. Brilliant. Most listened to artist, Hugh Jackman. (laughs) Most listened to, you know, it was like everything was the Greatest Showman on that because I just listened to it so much last year. It's just, it's just, it's like for movie musicals, I just think it's got the best, most catchy, most singable soundtrack I've probably ever heard from a movie musical. I usually find it quite difficult with modern musicals as well to get into it. I find like when when a new musical comes out that I'm not fam- like already familiar with, I'm like, oh, I don't know, I don't know. Greatest Showman is one of those ones that I was always really wary about. But when I watched it, I was like, this is this this soundtrack slaps. <laughs> there's so many good songs in here. Um, and yeah, there's ones that keep sort of ringing around since, especially just working. I thought, oh, I haven't listened to the Greatest Showman soundtrack in a while. I'll stick that on. That's a great choice. Different choice as well. I, you know, I, I don't know what I was kind of expecting, but that's a, it might be our first musical inclusion for the record spinner. Yeah, that's... well, I mean, I'm like, I would, they, they could be, so, they're like, you know, loads of sci-fi mm. movie soundtracks that I love. And, and mostly I talk about sci-fi on my YouTube channel and things like that. So you might have thought I would have picked one of those, but no. I, I do love a musical too, and this one is just brilliant. Hugh Jackman, ah, oh, oh. that man is just brilliant. He just he can turn his hand to anything. Yeah, the man is a walking <laughs> such talent. a good singer. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have a particular favorite track from this soundtrack? Do you have like a, a like a um, number one that's always got a go to, never gets boring? There's the title one, uh, so mm. the greatest show. That's that's brilliant. Um, mm. It's just got, you know, it's got everything. It's It's got big ensemble bits. It's got Hugh Jackman singing singing his part. It starts off very slow and then builds up. And mm. then you've got this everyone bursting out singing. It's got key changes. Got to love a key change. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's just it's just a really great one. The other one is, um, it's either that or, actually, I, it's so hard to pick. Probably that. I like the one near the end as well, um, which I'm now blanking on the, the name of it. Uh, from now on, from now on, from now on brilliant. as well is really from good as well. So that good. again starts really slow with him and builds, mm. 
And I also like the one that he sings with Zac Efron in the bar where he's trying to convince Zac Efron's character to invest yes. in the circus. The actual that one's really the good. The footage for that scene as well is really good. Like not just the oh, song the choreography. But the, yeah, it's just... so well done. Um but yeah, no, great choices. Um very happy with that. I always try not to like judge people's picks, but at the back of my mind I'm like, mm, interesting. And this is like, yeah, I can get behind that. Greatest showman, definitely. Um so going from the greatest showman, I don't even know how I'm gonna be able to transition that, but so I'm just gonna butcher it. The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> um, one no singing in this one. Yeah, one of the notoriously um, looked down upon MCU films, um, and not. Re- I mean, it is an MCU film, but it's sort of very barely. It's sort of the most distant from the general, not just formula, but also in terms of like production team and style and aesthetic and everything like basically the whole film and i think as well considering that up until now up until very recently even very few characters who are in that film have made appearances very few references from that film have made appearances in future films um up until around about civil war time when we got general ross back um and only now in shang chi where we're going to apparently be getting abomination the incredible hulk though you know the general consensus is it's a bit shit what do you think? I think this gets too much. I, I think is it one of the is it one of the I don't want to say worst. Is it is it one of the least brilliant MCU movies? Maybe, mm. but I think it gets a lot more flack than it deserves. I I still maintain that there hasn't been a bad MCU movie at all. There have been, like, if I rank them all, this would admittedly probably be near the bottom. Mm. But, and, and re-watching it yesterday, I I was actually surprised about how much, like, there wasn't even any points where I was bored. I was mm. just, it was, it was still, a, it was a good film. It feels, it does feel tonally very disconnected from the MCU because it's a much more serious film. Uh, you know, there isn't the yeah. jokes and the, the kind of lightheartedness that you get in other MCU films. But it's, you know, as a film, looking at it as a film by itself, I think it's still a good film. Yeah, I I, th- I think that's fair, to be honest. I don't particularly love it. It's definitely at the bottom for me. Like, not, I don't know if it's right at the bottom. I think the problem with me is I can't work out if it's either that I don't like this film or that it just does not fit well with the rest of the MCU and just feels pointless. Because I feel like when you get, especially if you're doing like a MCU watch along or something, you sort of get in that mindset where you're sort of enjoying these films and you're picking up on all the references. Incredible Hulk has that, but you're sort of like, especially with, of course, the casting of Bruce Banner changing from this film to Avengers, it just leaves it so disconnected. So, so disconnected. And I feel it's definitely a shame because actually the quality of the film isn't actually terrible. I just think it's it has a lot of unfortunate decisions. I don't think, I don't think the CGI is that great, to be honest. No, I but think... it is still better than the 2003 Hulk movie. Well, yes, I mean, that's, yeah, that's that's <laughs> fair enough, yeah. I just think it, it, it stands out, as even still, especially after Iron Man, which, like, mm. looks consistently good. And I know that's, like, a different ballpark entirely because, like, a metal man to a huge green hulking beast is very, like, different things. But there's just... It almost seems like a step down. If Incredible Hulk was like first, I'd be like, okay, 
interesting. I'll see where it goes, and that would almost make more sense, and it would feel like more of a step up to Iron Man. But I think going from Iron Man to Hulk to Iron Man Two, you know, say what we want about Iron Man Suicide, we'll talk about that in a bit. But I feel that there's a, there is a step down for me in quality. But then again, I can't tell if that is too much to do with the actual film or whether that's just how connected it is with the MCU and the fact that it feels a little bit redundant because of the um, the very obvious casting change and also the general aesthetic of the film yeah it does it's jarring watching it in a marathon mm. even watching it in this little three film marathon that I did over the last few days it is a little bit jarring because of the tonal disconnect and then if you go on to then watch the Avengers, the fact that Mark Ruffalo plays a very different mm. uh, Bruce Banner yeah. to Edward Norton's Bruce Banner. There's, there's, you know, differences in characters and the way the the, the, the character works as well, just the logistics and the uh, of how Hulk works. And like the whole thing about him not getting up his heart rate in this is completely abandoned after this movie. Yeah. That's never referenced again, that he can't get excited or get his heart rate up or yeah. anything. That's that's a big plot point of this movie and mm. it's just forgotten about after this so yeah it does feel a little bit disconnected um but i don't think that makes it a bad movie by itself no i, I it's just it's a bit weird mm. in the mix of the mcu movies. i think it's it's a very strong hulk film i feel like actually what it does with the character what it does with the lore of it the stuff that it sets up and the general sort of story around it isn't actually too bad. I actually don't mind like the story of Abomination as well as the villain because he isn't really the villain until like right at the end. I mean, Blonsky's a bit of a dick all the way through the film, sure, and General Ross is hunting um, Banner down throughout the whole film, yeah, but I like how that sort of, there's not just a big bad who's just going around the whole time. I like how actually you know, to praise the film, the story structure actually isn't that bad. I think it is just, again, let down by the obvious factors of the casting and the story. Again, world building. The world building in Iron Man's brilliant, and that is consistent throughout the like, future MCU films. The world building in this does not feel like the same world, and I think that's the sort of issue I have with it now. And I think it's a shame, because actually I think at the time where this came out, I think opinion of it would have been a lot higher than it maybe is now because of the way it's like, oh, this is part of the MCU. It feels really yeah, disjointed. I think, well, at the time, they, they it was obviously meant to be part of the MCU yeah. because obviously uh, with Stark showing up at the end and things. Mm. But the, the, um, the more serious tone, I don't... I don't know. It, it, it jars now, but it... I, I, it didn't jar too much against the first Iron Man because that they yeah. were both very grounded, like felt like they were, like I said earlier, like what would happen if these things happened in the real world type events. Yeah. Definitely. So this kind of does fit with that. It just doesn't have the, the kind of character that jokes around like Tony Stark does. Yeah, I think that's true. I think you're very right in that and it does feel very grounded, very real. Um, and I do actually, and I think that was one thing because I watched this film, I've only seen this film twice, once when I was a lot younger and once on my very recent rewatch and I was actually surprised because I was dreading watching this film because I thought it was going to be absolute dog shit and actually it wasn't that bad. I mean it was, 
yeah, it, it has its elements and it has its moments where it just doesn't gel with what I look for in these sorts of films. And But I think it, it all comes down to personal preference. And I'm not, like, a huge, huge fan of the Hulk as a character. So it is sort of like that combined with the casting, combined with the more grounded style, which I'm not too keen on. For me, personally, this isn't kind of the film that I, like, would have wanted to be, like, the second in the MCU or to be, like, the origin story for the Hulk. Um, it, well, it, it isn't an origin story for the Hulk. That's what I like. I mean, they cram the origin... They sort of do yeah, flashbacks to the origin. I guess, But that's yeah. what I kind of like about it is that it doesn't waste time with the origin. It, you know, has it all in the credits. Mm. Uh, that's the origin. You see the flashbacks to roughly what happened an, to him. Mm. And because we know the Hulk's got... Because there had been a Hulk movie, which was an origin movie, even though it's not in the same continuity, we know the rough gist. Most or general audiences would have known mm. the rough gist of the origin anyway. So they just needed that little bit to remind her. And then you had this kind of story, which was much more... Um, kind of felt like it could have been one of the stories from the TV 70s and 80s TV show mm. of the Hulk where he's all constantly on the run being chased by the military mm. and just has to avoid them that kind of feel to it and there were references back to that mm. there were several references back to that 70s TV show in this mm. but with casting with cameos with music cues even there's one bit where he's walking slowly down a road and and some there's a music cue which is basically the uh, the ending of every episode of the... I don't know if you've ever seen it, but the I ending of most no. of the episodes of the 1977 series, um, which I remember watching when it was repeated in, like, the mid-90s mm. on TV. Uh, and he would, like... It wasn't... His name, bizarrely, wasn't Bruce Banner. It was something else. But Dr. Banner would be walking down, like, in some random mm. town back like walking away from that town because he has to leave that town to not be found and there'd be this sad music playing in the background and they use that music for one bit where he's walking down the street here mm. so i kind of like those nice little oh, easter egg references mean, callbacks yeah. they had the guy that played the hulk in that lou um yes. Fregno, had a cameo yeah. and also voiced when he was the hulk still voiced the hulk in this ah. That's and um bill is it Bill Baxby? Bill Bax, Bill Bill Baxby. I think his name is. Is the actor that played Doctor Banner in that series? I don't think he's alive anymore. But they had a they had Bruce Banner watching a clip of another Bill Baxby TV show as well. So they just like mm. those references back to that was quite nice as well. That's quite nice. And I, I mean, like, I I didn't. I'm again. I'm not too familiar with the Hulk in terms of. Um, pop culture it was never really my sort of superhero of choice kind of thing i never really knew much about it um as a kid i was very much more spider-man batman kind of thing um but that's nice because i wasn't aware of all those references and all. i mean i knew that i knew about the casting one i know the um the guy who played the hulk had a cameo in it um it's and i know they do the whole thing with the big, the big purple shorts as well which i think it's quite fun um but yeah, no, I, I, that's that's interesting because I wasn't aware of that as much, and I think that does add to it a little bit more, especially for big, long-time fans of the Hulk and uh, the Hulk in media as well. Especially if you've grown up with that seventies um, TV show, it was really nice to see that referenced or acknowledged in this. Um, yeah, I think the story isn't actually that bad. I think, you know, I love the references and stuff. There's just a 
think it's because it feels disjointed that it's really hard to look at this as a standalone film. Even though it is the most standalone, it's really hard to sort of judge it without comparing it to other MCU films or without mentioning that because when it's still sort of classified as it's in the MCU, it's really difficult to look at it and go, this is just a standalone Hulk. Because that's what I try and do is I try and just say to myself, this is a standalone Hulk film. It's a really yeah. good standalone Hulk And there film. are those links to the wider MCU as well as Stark appearing. There's like the Stark Industries logo is oh, listed throughout it's this film. everywhere, you see yeah. It on loads of equipment and all sorts of things. Uh, in the opening credits, Nick Fury's name is on like a piece of paper that you see. Yeah. Um, the Super Soldier program is mm. mentioned because that's basically what um, Emil Blonsky, the Abomination, is, is, they've revived the Super uh, Soldier program and given him that. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's only because he takes a second dose of it, doesn't he? he no, yeah, that's it. He get the only reason he turns into the like creature at the end is because the he gets the that other doctor guy at the university to give him another sort of dose of something. It was, I think it was Banner's uh, the, blood, actually, wasn't it? Banner's blood, yeah. yeah. That then turns him into that. If he'd, I mean, if he just stayed as he was, he looked a bit sweaty. He didn't look particularly. Mm massively healthy mm. but he was clearly stronger from his first fight that he'd had with um thing he basically was a super soldier at that point yeah. so it's interesting I, like, I think as well again because it's the one that i had the least memory of going back and watching this again in like after knowing about captain america and all that sort of stuff i found that so much more interesting and so much more connected in a weird way but yeah, no, I, it's, it's strange. I think it's interesting, and I think it's a really cool choice that they're now bringing back um, characters from this film in the sort of newer eras of the MCU. I actually really like that. I think that's such a great element where it's, I don't know, I guess it's sort of like, it might give this film a little bit more appreciation and give people more of an mm. opportunity to go back and rewatch it. You know, again, with Abomination um, being confirmed for She-Hulk, but also appearing in the Shang-Chi trailer. Uh, General Ross, who's been a oh, I didn't know um, he was in Abomination. Going to be in Abom Abomination was going to be in She-Hulk as well. Yeah, they announced it quite a while ago. Tim Roth as well. Oh, cool. So that's really that's interesting nice. to have like him back um, playing the same character. I I'm really interested with that, but also again, like General Ross appearing in Civil War, Avengers, and I believe Black Widow upcoming as well. Um, like it's really interesting to see these characters start to make a reappearance and reintegrate into the mcu a little bit more i know there's obviously like licensing issues between universal and um disney between the hulk and what they can actually do with those characters but i think it's been i think i think the main thing is that they just can't make a hulk film mm. i think i think that's the the i think they can use the characters because they exist within the marvel world but they just can't make an, a solo hulk film and the only reason they can't is because the deal that they have with was it Universal? I think it's Universal, isn't it? Is that they, that Universal would automatically have the distribution rights and Disney obviously mm. want the distribution rights because it's, it's a Disney company. So uh, that's, and that's the only reason it's not on Disney Plus as well, which I found, only found out when I went to yeah. try and watch it. <laughs> yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's, I don't know, but it does, it does pick my interest how more, it seems to be getting more and more integrated as time goes on. Like, for example, before Civil War, The Incredible Hulk could have been like easily snipped out. But then you get you bring back General Ross, you do that. Now you bring him back Abomination. It's like okay, now that that is really solidifying this as a film yeah. that you should watch in your rewatches. 
whether it's connected or not, whether it's all that sort of thing, it's in the MCU. And the characters. I don't know if there's are. anybody else left to bring back from it, though. Is there really? I mean, there's the leader who is the the scientist, mm. which you know he gets the blood in his, yeah. on his head and his brain. They were setting up that obviously for a sequel that never came. Um, but like, I mean, Betty, I suppose. But yeah, I, I don't know what. Uh, like, else. I, I'm gonna say this now, but like, that was the worst bit of casting. Yeah, I think. No. Uh, Be- Betty Ross, Liv Tyler. I, I that didn't work for me at all. Yeah, I just don't think she played the character very well just didn't i don't know what you think yeah i'd agree to be honest kind of forgettable i watched it quite recently and i'm kind of just thinking was there any memorable scenes and not really and most of those scenes came from like like edward norton's performance of bruce banner which actually let's point out is actually pretty good oh yeah it's it's really good i mean he's a fantastic actor Mm. and uh i think it only it seems strange because it's so different from Mark Ruffalo's, yeah. which we've now gotten used to, that it, it's... But it's still a good performance. Yeah. And, you know, if he had carried on, it's hard to imagine now, but I'm sure it would have been fine. I know there were behind-the-scenes issues mm. there, I think. One of the things that um, I think is well-known is, anyway, is that Edward Norton likes to, and did on this film, rewrote a lot of the script because mm. he, he was just like, no, this will work better this way. And, and and just rewrites the script, mm. and I don't know, I don't know if he has that in his contract that he can do that, <laughs> or if he just like throws a hissy fit and they go, oh, it's just easy to let him do it. Mm. But yeah, he rewrote quite a lot of this film apparently. That's and, interesting. You know, he'd sit there rewriting scenes, and apparently he's quite a long time Hulk fan, so he was writing it from the perspective of a fan, mm. like altering scenes from the perspective of a fan. So. Yeah, uh, I, I, but I, I gather that he was hard to work with, is the general yeah. story. And I'll be honest, I do prefer Ruffalo's performance. I, I like what he does with it. Even from the get-go in Avengers, I actually... Well, maybe not that first scene where he slams the table, it's a bit awkward. But like beyond that, Ruffalo's, like I, I think, is pretty solid throughout basically all the other MCU oh, yeah. films. He's like the perfect version of like Bruce Banner that I could sort of imagine. Now, I don't, again, know too much from the comics, or and I'm not really that big of a Hulk fan, but he really sells me on this sort of almost Jekyll and Hyde type thing where it goes, he's quite awkward and, and skitzy and then jumps from that to Hulk. I think it's just brilliant. He does feel, uh, Mark Ruffalo also does feel more like a scientist. Yeah, first, definitely. Rather than Edward Norton... You know, he does all this, like, in that scene where he's being chased by the military in whatever South American country he's in, I can't remember. Mm. But, you know, and he's, like, leaping over rooftops, you know, doing... It's almost one stage down just from parkour. It's like, he's very athletic. And whereas Mark Ruffalo feels like he's, like, he's not an action guy until he's the Hulk. He's a scientist. Mm. Whereas Mark Ruffalo feels like he's an action guy anyway. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's it's that makes sense. It's an interesting one. I think, like, yeah, uh, there's a huge difference between the two of them, and I do prefer um, Ruffalo's interpretation of the character and what they do there. But I think Norton's is definitely interesting and shouldn't kind of be overlooked. Uh, Norton's is probably again more that traditional kind of superhero origin where he is. Yeah, he's a really super clever scientist, but like he's on the run. He's still like. You know, he's doing, again, there's, there's like parkour and all that sort of stuff, like round, um, I think it was real he was in. 
and just the the and that that scene was great. I loved seeing him on the run as well from like in in that sort of place with all the really tight streets and um, alleyways and stuff. I thought that was really brilliant. Um, but yeah, I, I think with the Incredible Hulk is that there's a lot to it, and I think it does get overlooked. I totally agree with you there. I'd be very interested to see what happens with the characters and the sort of this film generally in the future again with stuff like abomination like are they actually going to reference this as like a thing or are they just going to go okay we'll just sort of gloss over that especially with like tim roth coming back as abomination in the mm. future that will be really interesting to see how they integrate him into the modern mcu and how they call back to this do they call back to this do they even show anything from it because that's another possibility as well. It's honestly really difficult to work out. But I'm interested, and I'll be interested to see how this film goes down in, you know, let's say like another um, seven or eight years when we're at like the MCU's 20th anniversary. It's like, it's interesting. Um, it's definitely got me intrigued. Is there anything else you want to sort of mention about The Incredible Hulk that we haven't already talked about? Because I feel like, Again, it's... Um, I'm just trying to see if I, there was any notes I made. The, I, the, you know, there's a nice few things that I noticed that, I, like, there's a guy in the computer room when he's in a university. I don't know if you know this. It's, um, who's eating a pizza mm. and sort of just waves it in from another computer. And that actor is the same actor that later plays Peter Parker's teacher in... Uh, it, like one of his high school teachers in the Spider-Man MCU movies. Ah, oh. and oh, somebody like said to oh, yes. um, to um, uh, to to Feige at some point, could are they the same character? And I think he basically just went, yeah, why not? Because <laughs> I they, love that like, it matches up. You know, he was a teach. He, you know, he went on from a university and became a teacher, and and just those like retroactively. Obviously, they weren't planning this at the time. No. But just retroactively doing stuff like that is, again, part of how this whole, having a whole connected universe like this, the really fun things it can do with it. Exactly. I quite like that. Yeah, I'd I, I actually forgotten about that because I remember seeing that on probably something like TikTok. I probably saw it somewhere like that. But it was, I was, I was so shocked because I didn't even notice. That. I mean, I remember that in The Incredible Hulk when I, like, when I watched it. I remember looking at that and going, oh yeah, I remember that. I was like, I can't believe I didn't click that that's the same guy who's in the Spider-Man films because I'm a huge fan of the MCU Spider-Man films and... Like, I should have recognised that. I should have clocked that. That's brilliant. Yeah, well, I mean, he's only in, like, one very quick scene yeah. in the Hulk movie. So, I mean, he's basically an extra, almost. I don't even know if he's got any lines. I don't, yeah, sort of I don't think so, but it's, the room. it's pretty cool. So, um, yeah, and the other thing I was going to say is, like, there's a nice... Uh, as I said earlier, I was a fan of the Ultimate comics, which is like an alternate universe mm. Marvel thing comics, where they were all envisioned as younger and, like sort of the world and a lot of the it's where the sort of uh the the black version of nick fury originally comes mm. from because he was originally in in the main marvel comics mm. nick fury is a white guy but in the ultimate universe he's a black guy and was specifically drawn to look like samuel l jackson mm. <laughs> and That's then there's brilliant. a line in in uh in one of the comics where so, another character asks Nick Fury, who would play him in a movie, and he says, "Well, Samuel L. Jackson, obviously." <laughs> and then, then the story is, I believe, that Samuel L. Jackson was shown this and was like, "What? I didn't give them rights to my image, <laughs> you know." And basically went to Marvel to like threaten to sue them, 
and came away with the promise that if they ever made a movie with Nick Fury in that he would get to play him. That's brilliant. I never knew that. That's incredible. I don't I don't know if that last part is true. Uh, is that's the story I heard. The rest of it is definitely true, though. It was used without his permission, and um, and there's interviews with Nick Fury, uh, with sorry, with Samuel Jackson of him retelling this story of when he found out and was like, "What?" That's brilliant. Oh, I love that. Yeah, so that's good. That's a- so I like the uh, so the Ultimate Comics. Mm. Where I was going to with that is that there's a moment in this where uh, where Bruce Banner jumps out of a helicopter because mm. he wants to transform into the Hulk to go fight the Abomination. And that, I think, is a callback to the Ultimates as well, because there's there's a scene in the Ultimates comic where he does a similar thing. Well, actually, in that one, he's thrown out of the helicopter mm. to to get him to transform. He doesn't want to. But here it's deliberate. And then later on in the MCU, in Ragnarok, yeah. it's kind of played for last because he does the same thing again and jumps out of a, an airship type mm. thing, a spaceship, uh, it at, just outside Asgard, but he doesn't transform and he sort of hits the ground and he's just like laying there going yeah. as Bruce Banner. So they, they kind of call back to, to this moment then as well, which is quite nice. Yeah. No, I, 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 I'd actually forgotten about that moment, but yeah, I did. I, again, I'd sort of forgotten about that and realized when I was watching the incredible Hulk, that that's what Ragnarok was referencing with that. So I was like, ah, interesting. Yeah, no, um, to round it off, do you have a particular favorite scene from the incredible Hulk? I don't know. Favorite scene. You know what? It, is it bad to say I don't have a favorite scene from this? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's not like I don't I, think it's a bad film, yeah. but there's nothing that really stands out as like, wow, that was amazing. Yeah, I think I think I'd agree to be honest. I couldn't. I was gonna say like, I was hoping you'd come up with something good, so I go, yeah, yeah, I, could, I agree. Because I I don't really. I'm like, oh, I, I can't really know if I, I think of anything. Because I mean thinking back i've watched it recently and i think that is a bit of a downside where it's it, to me either it's forgettable or just doesn't have notable moments or a bit of both and either way that's like not a great thing um i yeah i wish i wish there was a bit more standout to talk about but i think that's yeah I, i'm in the same boat there so we'll head off on our last little break before we come back and talk about iron man 2 before we talk about iron man 2 though we're going to be asking philip's pick for the 64K Ultra Mega HD range. Thank God. I never get that wrong. Like, I, I'm genuinely shocked. I'm going to get through a whole series of this podcast without actually getting that wrong, and I'm genuinely surprised. I will see you all after the break. Welcome back to the third part of our Spill Your Beans review for the MCU part one. I think that's what we're calling it. Uh, before we talk about Iron Man 2, though, we're going to be asking Philip's pick for the 64K Ultra Mega High Definition range. This is a little range where we ask our viewers, uh, our viewers, our guests, sorry, to uh, pick out a particular film that they absolutely adore. They want to put in this private exclusive collection that barely turns any film into it. It's not the Criterion Collection, it's not a steelbook, it's not a 4K, it is the most exclusive. And you get the lucky opportunity today to put one of your own favourites in there. What do you pick? Let's see if I can surprise you again, because I surprised you with the soundtrack one. Um, I'm going to go for a film called Maholland Drive. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it, I haven't seen it. It's a David Lynch film. Mm. Um, and if you are familiar, if anybody's familiar with any of David Lynch's work, 
can I swear on this podcast? Go for it. Go for it. You know, it's just completely fucked up. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> David Lynch. I mean, the guy's mind is the most bizarre place. He's the guy that made Twin Peaks. He's the mm. guy mm. that made uh, films like Eraserhead. And mm. uh, he, he's at one of the films. Uh, I'm going blank on his other films now, but I've watched quite a lot of his films. Um, and uh, Mulholland Drive is the one that kind of introduced me to David Lynch mm. as a director and as a, as a sort of creative. He, I watched this film, first of all, I just came across it on the telly and I watched it. It was like midnight. I just got in from the pub or something and I was so still slightly drunk. And <laughs> I... And I was like, what is this? This is so weird. And then I bought it on DVD when I got, during my first year of uni, I bought it on DVD. And I don't even know how to explain what this movie is about. It's just so, so weird, but it's so captivating. And Mm. when I bought it on DVD at uni, me and my housemate at the time watched it four times in one day. Oh my God. Because we watched it and we were like, I don't entirely understand what I've just watched. I don't understand what it means, but I, I, mm. I, it was amazing. Just the visuals of it and, and everything Yeah. that then we watched it. We, we've got to watch it again. We've got to work out what this film means mm. <laughs> and watched it again. Still didn't have a clue. Did some Googling. Nobody else on the internet seemed to know either. Yeah. Watched it again. And it was just so fascinating that I like, it's the only film I've watched four times in one day ever. Like I've never even watched a film, any other film twice in one day, but for some yeah. reason I felt compelled to watch this that's one mad. four times in one day. That's, that's brilliant. Pretty hell. I, I can't, I, I wish I was familiar with it, but I, again, it's one of those ones that someone mentioned in my, I'm, I'm going to add that to the list. I'm, I actually have to watch this. And I've heard of this. It start, I mean, I'll do my bit. So it starts times. to, it starts as like this kind of, this woman arrives in LA looking mm. to become an actress. And, you know, the first half of the film, some weird stuff happens, but mm. it's mostly like, it's mostly this just kind of this story about this woman who, who, you know, lodges with this other woman. Uh, they get into a bit of a relationship, but then like the halfway point hits and mm. like the weirdness ramps up to a hundred and the, the story sort of starts again and it's the same actors, but they're, it's, they're like, they are different characters. They have different names and, mm. and all this other weird stuff is happening. And there's these scenes that are like completely disconnected and it's all mixed with this amazing soundtrack and these beautiful visual visuals. And it's just the bizarrest film I've ever watched. And then it got me into watching other David Lynch films like Twin Peaks, which I love as well. So that's brilliant. Yeah, you've got me excited for it. You have, you actually have. So that's that's a great pick. I mean, I, I can't imagine anyone listening to this who now isn't at least interested to go and start watching that uh, immediately after this podcast. Of course, we've got to get through that. Um, <laughs> so, oh, bloody hell, yeah! I wish I'd seen it so I could talk more about it. But yeah, um, great choice. Another one to add to the list uh, to the watch list. Um, but going from what sounds like an absolutely brilliant film to Iron Man 2. Where do we stand at Iron Man 2? Again, I'm, I'm going to reiterate that I don't think there's been a bad MCU movie. Mm. However, again, this one, it's the weakest of the Iron Man movies. We've gone from the strongest yeah. of the, uh, the three to, the I think, the weakest of the three. 
And I think it's just probably because they tried to cram too much into it. Mm. All the, they, they were really heavy on the setup for the universe and setting up the Avengers and other stuff yeah. in this. Um, and there's this the, there's a section in the middle with Nick Fury, which is, while it's nice to see him, it, it kind of feels like, okay, this isn't really advancing the story of the film. It's just there to world build yeah. future films. It's a lot more clunky in that respect, I'd say. Yeah. But other than that, it's still a good, you know, watch. It's still fun for the most part. And I, you know, I wouldn't ever go, oh, I don't want to watch that. That's that's a rubbish film. Yeah. Um, I think this is very fun, actually. I think this is a very fun MCU film. My criticism, again, comes with that it, again, is such a big step down from Iron Man 1 especially in terms of the villain department, which is the one thing I wasn't too keen on in Iron Man 1. At least um, Stan had actually some character development, some actual proper motivations there. Um, um, yeah, in in this, I'm trying to remember, is it Ivan, his name? Is it Yeah, Van- I can't remember his last name now, Van- but yeah, Vanko, Ivan is it? Vanko? Vanko. Yeah, mm. something like that. In this film, like there is motivations there, but they are motivations that are spoken in exposition by other characters. And then by the end of this, he's just another Iron Man villain in a big metal suit. But this time, instead of having big guns, he has big whips and a big army of robots. Yeah. It's kind of like the villain in this. I, I think it's, it's it's entertaining. Don't get me wrong. I'm never going to be able to watch that scene where he requests a bird and not laugh because it's such a, it's a brilliant scene, but I don't think I it's a very, <laughs> I just don't think it's a very like compelling villain story. Um, and then on the flip side of that, I think Tony's story is interesting. Don't get me wrong. I think it's well done. I, I quite like the fact that he needs to try and find this replacement element and the connection with his dad does get paid off across the rest of the MCU films as well. That sort of father-son connection is so important for Tony's character, and I'm really glad they took time to do that and also mix it into a story about him uh, working out a new arc reactor as well and that new element. That was a really interesting element of the story that I really liked that sort of really showcased Tony's smarts and, and that sort of thing. But with most of the film being him going on this sort of like depressing end-of-the-world sort of rave and then just stumbling upon this thing because like nick fury and shield were like here look at this it's kind of like that mixed with the villain stuff i was just like this is actually structurally kind of weak and kind of just fucking about for a bit until something happens yeah well the the whole drunk you know drunken sort of like Mm. you know him being poisoned he starts with him being poisoned and and him thinking he's going to die which leads him to sort of Mm. over excessive partying and drinking Mm. that's kind of from what i gather i've never read it but there is a comic book arc from i might be the 80s um that called uh, demon in the bottle which is basically tony stark becoming an alcoholic Mm. and that this kind of feels like it's their version of that, but they couldn't really do that to its full extent and mm. bring him as low as being a, a full on alcoholic because it's, uh, di- you know, well, it wasn't Disney then, but you know what I mean? It, you know, they were trying to keep it relatively family friendly and yeah, they, so you can't go too dark with it like you would have had to have done to properly adapt that storyline. So mm. it kind of feels like they've just kind of like 
crammed like that storyline into a glitzier yeah. shell and i'm not sure well like i haven't read the original plot line a demon in the bottle so i can't judge it massively mm. but, but it kind of feels like that they it, it was almost like they why bother if you're not going to do it properly that's the thing though but i think people have a lot of criticism for iron man 3 but one thing i will say is the stuff about ptsd and anxiety in that film is so well handled this film kind of feels like the middle ground between it. It almost doesn't know which way it wants to lean. I feel like if this was a lot more of a serious film, it could have done a really good job. On the alternative side, if it had abandoned that and done something a little bit more fun and lighthearted, like perhaps more like the first one, it could have also done really well. I think this weird middle ground where it's got a sort of... Especially with Tony's story, it's kind of difficult to interpret. It's difficult to play around because there isn't that much there there isn't enough there for me personally to sort of go yes this is this is worth my time sitting down for like two hours and watching this i i I do like this film i don't think it's bad i think it's a lot of fun but i think it baffles me how iron man 3 usually gets like flack for being the worst and then this film is just there and doesn't even offer anything or try anything too interesting. It just kind of either it has a mix of trying to do something fun and indifferent and weird, but also holding back so much as well and being so careful that it just doesn't come across too well. Personally, yeah. anyway. Yeah, and, w- and what you were saying about the villain, I think he start in the first bit of the film. He is kind of interesting, mm, and mm, he, yeah. in, you know, they they set up his dad dying and that, and they, so they set up the motivation there, and that you know that's quite good. And then you get the Monaco race scene, mm. which I think is a brilliant spectacle. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that scene works really well. It's it's exciting. Oh, definitely, definitely. It's the 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 sort of battle and him with the whips there works really well. But then he gets sort of arrested. And then, you know, put in prison and then Justin Hammer gets him out. And from that, from the end of the Monaco scene, he sort of loses his sort of interest as a villain. He's just kind Mm. of, I I don't know what the word is, but he's just kind of there after that. Yeah. I feel like there could have been a lot more done with his character. And I know a lot of it's like, oh, um he's keeping it under wraps he's not saying much because he's trying to sort of manipulate justin hammer so he has all these supplies all these things that he can do and that's brilliant but the one problem with that is the audience don't it's not a big twist there's not a big twist moment where it's like ah he was up to that because we know he's up to no good we can tell he doesn't like justin hammer because we've seen how he's like mm. before justin hammer we've seen how he's like with justin hammer it's like we know he's manipulating him we know he's there's a reason he's not doing this so there's no big payoff there's no big surprise it basically just makes whenever he's with justin hammer or working for justin hammer he's just kind of boring and then when he does eventually betray him and does his own thing he ends up just being big robot whip man and doesn't really do anything that interesting particularly yeah I don't know. I, I guess I just I'm I'm more against that. But on the flip side of this, I think um, Don Cheadle is brilliant. Um, obviously, really yeah, of course, affirming, recast from the first film. Yeah, but also you know becoming sort of War Machine almost a little bit. I, I quite like that, and the way they did that in this story was quite fun as well. Um, obviously, with the the party scene and then um, oh, uh, Rhodes t- actually taking 
the um, sort of way of confiscating it and then sort of changing it and adding some stuff to it. I quite liked that. Um, it was a nice... Yeah, and there was a line later on that, like, indicates that Tony actually kind of wanted him to do that mm. because he has protocols on the suits that don't let it... that mean it can't be used by unauthorised people. So he had authorised Rhodey to use that suit. Yeah, yeah, so, definitely. At some point, he was planning either to give it to him or to let him use it or thinking that something like this might happen. Obviously, mm. he's a, tied in with the fact that he thinks he's dying at this point. He's probably thinking of him as a successor at this point, I yeah. would have thought. Definitely, yeah, that's probably what it was. And But I think it's just, that's a really interesting development. I really like how they did that. And also, just on mention of that character as well, I love how he's introduced into this film. I love how he walks and the shot is from behind him. And I love the dialogue around that where he's like, oh, I wasn't expecting you. He's like, oh, it's me. Deal with it. You know, it's happening. That's it. Right. It's such a like on the nose kind of breaking the fourth wall kind of thing. But like so well done. That's like that's how you recast someone. I absolutely that was so well done. And I, and I yeah, especially someone yeah, we didn't... so close to Tony as well um, as a friendship. It, it sort of had to be done in a sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of way but it was so it works so well it's the best time i've ever seen that kind of thing done in film really where a character's been changed yeah. their actor it's so, played off so well that you just accept it straight away there's no argument there's no like oh i don't know it might not work but yeah we didn't really talk about roadie in the first film there's um, probably a good reason for that to be honest well yeah i was gonna ask how do you how do you think the two compare and like how did, did you like terence harrod at all as as roadie I think he, no, I didn't mind him. I, I think, think it was okay. I think, I think he's fine, but like, again, when he was only in the one, and like Don Cheadle for me is just so much more that character, and so like I feel like he embodies the character a lot more as well. And maybe that's just because he's been in more of the films, but I think even from the get go in Iron Man Two, like the dialogue really suits Don Cheadle and how he's like performing it. It sort of it does live and breathe it a lot more. They do feel like more like they're friends. In yes, this than. Like their long-time friends, their interaction, their sort of banter between each other does feel yeah more like they've known each other for like most of their lives. Or... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's an element which I feel more in Iron Man Two and beyond with Don Cheadle. Um, so yeah, I think the the performance in Iron Man One was fine, but like forgettable. You know, I I I, I yeah. do think that like yeah, it's a weird one, but still. I think I think Don Cheadle is particularly good in this though, and, and does give quite a good performance. It does not too much to work with, but there is enough where it's like, okay, he can really show that he is he's now sort of solidifying himself as this character, and I really respect that. Yeah, that Senate scene at the the top is um, got several interesting things in it, mainly because of like what comes later, because the the senator running the hearing mm. later turns out to be. Hydra yes. and the Winter Soldier. So that, like, watching that back is interesting because it's like, oh, okay, with this foresight, with this knowledge now that we've got from, yeah. from the Winter Soldier, it's like, okay, I see what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that, again, that's just how the MCU is really able to complement itself in that respect where it can bounce back and forward, it can do these things, and it makes it work. Um yeah. There is one line in that Senate hearing, though, that did make me cringe a little, which was Tony saying, I've successfully privatised world peace. And that yeah. just that just made me cringe. 
Yeah. Like, not... Yeah, okay, in the context of this film, we do want to keep the Iron Man suit out of the hands of the government because, A, we also know that this senator later on is going to be, um, you know, bad guy. B, we know Tony mm. is, like, we root for him. But, like, yeah. in a real-world situation, like... Yeah, okay, that makes me cringe a little bit. And that's part partly that's my own understandable. Project, so I'll hold my hands up there. But that's but like, understandable. Pri- yeah. The idea of privatizing stuff yeah. should not be privatized. Yeah, that's honestly, yeah, I get that. That was the one thing. But that scene generally, I think, is brilliant. Um, and I, to, to be honest, to, to jump into the my favorite kind of scene of the film, I think that probably is it. That that Senate hearing and, you know, um, Tony taking over the screens. And oh, just, that's just brilliant. Yeah, yeah it's the wedding's so just like, good. Like, and completely shows up Justin Hammer. Oh, absolutely. And it's it's so satisfying to watch. And you sort of, again, I love when an actor can, especially in like franchises and stuff, it's like, yeah, they did a good job in the first one. It's like, okay, step it up. Like, how are you really going to make people believe this? And he, Robert Downey Jr. delivers in this so much. As does all the returning cast. And I think one person that hasn't been mentioned, I think, is um, John Favreau as um, Happy Hogan. Yeah, he's great. brilliant side character, and and he gets a lot more in this film mm. than he got in the first film. I, I imagine as like he basically because he's he's the director as well, yeah. he cast himself, so he probably felt oh, I would be a bit too arrogant in the first film to to just give myself loads of stuff. Yeah, but I think by the second film, people had like from the first film, I think people liked him enough and had meant you know that he felt probably a bit more mm. secure in going. I can give myself a little bit more this time. Yeah, and. It works because he's just great. Yeah, he is excellent in, in both of these and, again, excellent in future films as well. And I'm glad that he did sort of step up to that a little bit, especially with him being director. He could have very easily been a bit more humble about it. But the fact that he stepped up to it means we've got this, again, another great character that's lasted so long in the MCU that I'm just happy to see every time he's on screen. Um, but, yeah, no. Is there anything else you want to sort of discuss with Iron Man 2? Because I feel like I've kind of covered my thoughts on it with it being kind of a... It's 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 a decent film, but a significant step down from Iron Man One, and still, n- like not as good as Iron Man Three for all that fl- you know all their flaws in that film. Well, one thing we haven't mentioned is the introduction of the Black Widow. Oh God! Uh, who is int- yeah. You know, oh my in God! Yeah, of course. And I, you know, I think it's on the whole a very good introduction for her. Mm. I think looking back, I think she's and and there is I can see this. It's a very overly sexualized version of her, especially compared to future movies. And to a degree, that makes sense in the plot for the first bit because Mm. she is, you know, she's undercover for S.H.I.E.L.D. and she's trying to get in there as Stark's personal assistant. So to be a bit flirty and a bit Mm. sexualized would absolutely play to his characteristics in getting ingrained with him. So as an undercover tactic... It kind of makes sense. So mm. it makes sense in that part of the film. But even once she's revealed as an agent and they still have like the very low cut uh, unzipped yeah, tops. Yeah. And it's all very... And there's a moment where she's changing in, in the back of uh, Happy Hogan's car. And yeah. it, it's all very... It, it's a bit... And I think even Scarlett Johansson has said, looking back at that film, you know, she's very proud of that film, but it, it felt a little bit... Like it was a bit yeah. overly sexualized. It's a, it's, it's, as a it's, a t- it's a it's a tiny bit degrading here and there, and that's just not kind of. It, 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 yeah, it, like it, I say, it, it makes yeah. sense plot wise in the early parts. But it does make because it, she's trying to be undercover. I and think get, it makes it yeah. Some... I think it makes it difficult to watch the longer you go on though, and especially like now, when the characters just 
way more developed in like later films and stuff and you look back and go wow like like that's one of the main reasons she's yeah. in this film isn't it and that's kind of bad <laughs> um yeah but i, I have think to say though best best black widow hair because she changes her hair for every film it's completely different style yeah. every single film this is my favorite style of black widow hair really scarlett johansson's black widow hair really yeah. oh that's a fair point i don't know I, I i wasn't really keen on it in this film but there we, there we go disagree that's the first big disagree of the uh the podcast there there we go what's your favorite version of her hair then oh god i don't know i quite like um i quite like the end game to be honest the five years after i kind of like that i think that's like a unique style that didn't last very long before she went splat but uh yeah <laughs> that's probably that's probably my go-to um in terms of yeah i'm trying to think of anything else to say do you have a particularly favorite moment from this film i think as a whole scene um i really like the spectacle of the monaco race it's mm. it's a really good action scene and the, seeing tony trying to survive without his suit initially when he's being attacked by this this guy with these electronic whips mm. um is really interesting you know just dodging them and, and using the fact that the the fuel is on the floor and you know clever cleverly trying to mm. you know diving out the right in the right time and things like that that is a, is a great spectacle scene and just seeing like seeing whiplash cut those cars in two mm. uh, just mm. the visual effects on it is That's, yeah brilliant. again yeah brilliant i i, I especially in cgi again st- stand out absolutely yeah. so so probably that scene and then once he gets his suit it's I mean, it doesn't last long for Whiplash once he gets his suit, mm. once Tony gets his suit. But uh, but that's kind of like, I noticed, I've seen another video recently which was talking about this movie. And um, there is one moment in this where he gets, uh, where his whips are actually sort of overloading Tony's suit a little bit. Mm. And the, this person pointed out in the video that, that that is something that Tony does after every time a floor is found in his suit a bad guy um sort of manipulate like uses a floor mm, of his mm. suit he then the next version of his suit counteracts that so yeah. in a future movie we see him try and get electrocuted then he ends up absorbing the power yeah so it's, yeah. it's nice that that kind of things plays into future movies as well it's a nice element that's sort of an undertone of these films and it's kind of again a testament to the the storytelling, the world building, but also the character development of Tony Stark, because he feels like a believable character when these things happen. And it's not just pointless upgrades for the sake of pointless upgrades to sell more toys. I mean, there probably is an element of that, but it's I quite like that there is reason for it. Um, and especially like by the time you get towards Infinity War and stuff, where it's all like nanotech, it's like this is just it's overboard. But yeah. I'm like, this is great. <laughs> Yeah, but because it's been a slow evolution over mm, the movies, yeah. it like it's much more viable than if it'd gone from like Iron Man one to having nanotech and Iron Man two. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It feels like there's been actual development over time, and I think that's one thing that we can really praise the MCU for um, over time. And I'm looking forward to seeing vaguely what they do with the Armor Wars series. Yeah, I don't know what. Do they... you think we'll see Justin Hammer again in that? I'm thinking probably. I hope so. I think it'd be kind of cool. I, I'm 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 at a point now where I'm like, let's see some more like Phase One and Two like baddies, like just sort of show up. Let's like bring back because it's been so long now that it's like okay, let's 
really connect this universe properly. Yeah, and they are because they, you know, we're getting the abomination back. We're mm. getting the the Ten Rings terrorist organization yeah, yeah. back, the proper one. Like, because I'm assuming the one in the first the film that kidnapped him what was the proper Ten Rings, not the fake Ten Rings that we yeah. get in Iron Man three. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're getting we are getting stuff from phase mm. one back again that we haven't seen for 10 years or so. So, so maybe, maybe. Mm. I don't think we'll see um, Ivan anytime soon. I'm sure. I think Mickey Rook's been quite open about his distaste mm. for his time with Marvel. So I don't think we'll see that, however unfortunate that might be. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, um, I think that's all I really want to say about Iron Man 2. Um, which rounds off the first three films of the MCU and this podcast. So, um, Philip, is there anything you want to sort of promote? Anything upcoming? Anything that you want to talk about? Now's your time. Um, Sell it. <laughs> I, uh, well, I've got my YouTube channel, which I talk about uh, all sorts of geeky pop culture stuff. But predominantly, I mean, it's about half of it's Doctor Who. And the other half is things like the MCU, Star Trek, um, anything else that I sort of like. Uh, so you can find that. It's just my name, Philip Hawkins, Philip with one L. Yeah, my if you if you're trying to find me amongst many other Philip Hawkinses on YouTube, then I am the one with the picture standing in front of some TARDIS roundels. <laughs> uh, so you can find yeah. me there. There's obviously the um, oh on there. I'm trying to think what I've got coming up. I haven't got much. Like I, I'm kind of just reacting to stuff as it happens at the moment mm. on there. But I do have the final um, version of my final episode of my Time Lord Victorious Canon Update series, which is. Uh, charting how the multi-platform Time Lord Victorious Doctor Who event all connects in with each other. So I've got the final one of that to cover Time Fracture, which is the immersive theatre event, which I went to on Saturday. So uh, that's coming up soon. Uh, And and, and probably some other stuff as well. And then, of course, there's the, as we mentioned earlier, the podcast Everybody is Dead Dave, which is a Red Dwarf Review podcast which uh, at some point within the next sort of six weeks or so, uh, George will be on yes. as a guest. I look forward to it. I look forward to it. Um, but yeah, as always, um, with this podcast, we're at Spill Your Beans on Twitter and obviously follow on Spotify and other good podcast providers for more episodes. Um, this is episode, I think, eight now of our main review series, but there are another, um, I think there's about another nine or ten episodes here and there. Uh, on our page already so if you're interested in those films and want to have a look at those as well that'd be greatly appreciated thank you all so much for listening and i will see you all next week see you later